Welcome to ACP's podcast, Inside the Lab, where we discuss anything and everything that concerns today's laboratory professionals and pathologists. My name is Dr. Loti Mulder. I'm the Director of Leadership and Empowerment at ACP, and I'm one of your hosts. Hey, everyone. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm also one of your co-hosts. I'm an ASCP certified medical technologist. I'm the executive editor for journals with the publications department at ASCP. And today we're going to be talking about the next pandemic, even though we're still deep in this one, we got to start thinking about the next one. And we have a few very exciting guests and I'll let them introduce themselves. Dr. Garner, if you want to get us started. Sure. I'm Dr. Omai Garner. I am the Director of Clinical Microbiology for the UCLA Health System and an Associate Clinical Professor in the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine. And I'm Karen Call. I'm Chair of Pathology at North Shore, which is a multi-hospital system in North Suburban Chicago. And I am a molecular pathologist by training, so I've been uh, deeply involved in things COVID in the past couple of years. Great. And I'm Keith Jerome. I'm the head of University of Washington Virology and a full professor there. I'm also a professor at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, where I do my basic science research. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Before we get started on our discussion today, I just got a little bit of housekeeping to keep out of the way. CME and CMLE will be available for listening to this podcast in the ASCP store. The American Society for Clinical Pathology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide, you guessed it, continuing medical education for the physicians. ASCP designates this enduring material for a maximum of one AMA, PRA, Category 1 credit. Physicians should only claim the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. All right, yeah, so uh, let's get going. I like to say that we're still very much in the during times, right? The before times was uh, before COVID hit, during times is right now, after times may happen eventually someday. What are the some of the biggest lessons you guys have learned in the past 18 months or so? Hard to boil that down, you know, resilience, patience with our people, flexibility. I mean, I think we've all, uh, as a laboratory system at every institution, had these uh, features tried. And, you know, thinking about what we might have done differently, it's really hard to say knowing what we knew at the, at the time as we were evolving into this. I think, you know, I personally am surprised we're still in it. Uh, I'm surprised we didn't get through it a year ago, but we're not through it yet. So we have to continue to plan ahead as best we can and and keep our teams going and and keep as much flexibility in the system as possible. I think the big lesson that I took away here is keeping an eye out for what we see happening around the world. We're one big Petri dish of a world these days. And, you know, there was some warning for this, if we all think back to the things we were hearing in late December and late January. And I think as a nation, we didn't really start to prepare with the intensity that we would have if we knew then what we know now. So I think that a heightened vigilance is just going to be incredibly important. We've proven what we can do as a profession, as an industry, so to speak. Uh, It's just astounding where we are now compared to where we were a year and a half ago. So I hope we can respond faster next time. I hope we can respond in such a way that maybe we could nip the next pandemic in the bud. Wouldn't that have been just so much easier than than dealing with what we are right now? Yeah, I have to agree with the notion of flexibility. You know, one thing that's been predictable is the unpredictability of this pandemic. And whether it's a lab running out of swabs or a lab having to do 200 tests one day and 2,000 tests 
literally the next week. Like layering in that flexibility isn't something we often think about from a lab director perspective, right? I like standardization. I like sort of locked in workflows. And now I've got six different COVID tests to perform. So all looking at COVID PCR. So, you know, I think that that level of flexibility was new within laboratory medicine, but, you know, it clearly represents the challenges that we're going to have to face in the next pandemic as well. I certainly agree with Dr. Jerome. I think as if we look as a society, we're going to need to find some way to build an infrastructure that supports our communication and our cooperation because, you know, I think we all understand that this won't be the last time we find ourselves in this situation. I want to kind of delve a little bit more deeply into what you guys have learned, but I want to take it on a personal level. I think what have you guys like personally learned that's maybe maybe laboratory related, maybe not. What have you guys learned personally in the last 18 months? For me, what really amazed me starting way back in last February and certainly into March as we really started ramping up the testing was how incredibly resilient our staff are from our most junior folks to to people really in positions of leadership. Those early days were incredibly difficult, as I'm sure everyone remembers or maybe tries to put out of their minds. And, And the way that folks stepped up and just did what needed to be done. And I think our system had just never been stressed at that level before. And and I think we all hoped that that would be the case, but sort of in a trial by fire, essentially to find out that the professionals in the laboratory are true professionals in the deepest meaning of the word. I think that that was just incredibly uh, gratifying for me to see. And and I'll be forever grateful to what they did, especially early on. And and the way, frankly, that they've run a marathon ever since. Uh, it really hasn't slowed down as much as obviously as we would have hoped. We did almost 10,000 tests yesterday. I mean, we're recording this on August 5th. And, you know, it's been a long time since we did 10,000. And I'm just shocked to see that capacity that we built up during the darkest days in, in last summer really get started to be pushed again a little bit. Um, I really didn't think we'd be here again. Yeah, Dr. Garner, what are your you know, thoughts? You're, you're in LA, so. Yeah, being sort of one of the hotspots, and now, unfortunately, hotspots are just all over the country, but being in, in one of the earlier hotspots and one of the places where our vaccine rates are pretty good, and yet we continue to see lots and lots of infection because we have a large unvaccinated population. You know, I, I think what surprised me personally, you know, I always felt being in lab medicine, that lab medicine was very important right? And we try and connect to our clinical colleagues. But, you know, I think what surprised me is how critically important the role lab medicine is in a pandemic to a functioning healthcare system, right? Like when you shut down a healthcare system, we were only able to turn it back on because we were able to provide COVID-19 testing for our patient population and labs worked on doing that as quickly as possible not affecting just people who are symptomatic with COVID-19, but affecting everybody that needed to show up to a healthcare system, to a hospital, to their doctor's office. So, you know, again, I think that I was just personally surprised by the global impact to a healthcare system that lab testing can have. And hopefully that allows health systems in the future to move resources to that area to be able to support so that we can better support the health system. 
I completely agree with Dr. Garner. I think, you know, we all living in the lab know the importance of what we do on a daily basis to all of clinical care. But I think this was a an opportunity for us really to demonstrate that and, you know, to remind our administrators and our coworkers, you know, how they simply can't function without us. We went so far as to try to tally all of the uh, expenditures and savings outside the laboratories that were afforded by us doing COVID testing in-house with a reasonably good turnaround time. And it was, you know, tens of millions of dollars, quite honestly, in uh, cost avoidance through not wasting PPE and in uh, our ability to reopen, as, as Dr. Garner has mentioned. So I think, you know, we're just instrumental and need to find ways to continue sharing that message. On a personal note, though, I agree with Dr. Jerome, continual inspiration by looking at our team and the way that they would work extra hours and take overnight shifts and quickly were able to scale from um, a laboratory that was, you know, 12 hours a day, five days a week, six days a week in molecular to really a 24-7 laboratory. And they had a remarkable amount of resilience within that lab, but also were supported by, you know, our staff across the laboratory system where they would come in and help with what other tasks they could, just ordering tests and helping to result or whatever their skill set would allow them to do. And in, to even go a step further, you know, the days that we would you know, walk into the lab in the morning and find out that the emergency room ordered us lunch, you know, those sorts of, of gestures were were very much appreciated and, you know, really kept people going on those bad days. So it was, uh, you know, a time I think we can all be proud of ourselves, despite the tremendous amount of work. So I think we're all very much aware of how long the last 18 months have been, but then also how much we've learned and we've grown. I was thinking the other day, way back in the beginning, just the, the lack of PPE and how hard it was to get a mask. And it amazes me like how far we've come in some ways and how and how little uh, we've come in others in fact that we're still in the middle of it but what are some things that you'd like to do differently in your own labs if you had to do it all over again if we can with the knowledge we have now if we can go back 18 months what would you do or what would you tell yourself so if we had the knowledge we had now, of course, that would be very helpful. Uh, you know, I can remember talking with Dr. Sabatini, uh, a colleague in Molecular here, trying to figure out if we were being paranoid by ordering primers for this virus back in January of 2020, you know, feeling a little well, bit yeah. But we placed the order anyway. And, you know, if we'd had that knowledge, if we'd had any idea, you know, where we were going, I think we would have all stocked up on all sorts of things, reagents and plasticware, and we would have, you know, hopefully had data that we could have started to train techs and hire techs. I mean, it just would have been a ramping up that ultimately we did in a very short period of time, as you're hearing. But that was an extreme challenge, to be sure. I uh, really just want to build on something that Dr. Garner said, which which was the number of assays that we do now. And I think with that benefit of hindsight, if we could have gotten a little head start on everybody else competing for those orders, it would have been nice to have settled on a on a smaller number of platforms and different assays. I, I, many of my colleagues, I think, have expressed this same idea. We have a lot of assays we're keeping up, and there's a lot of QC and a lot of different things. And it would have been nice to standardize things a bit more. I, I do sometimes look at those labs who maybe didn't get quite such an early start, but 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 have been able to build a much more cohesive or coherent workflow and and think how that must be nice um, when, when you're reviewing protocols and QC materials and so forth. 
the lack of information we had in those early days, we were scrambling to stand up testing as, as you all were as well. And, and, you know, not really having complete performance standards on those tests, you know, it was a bit of a gamble. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a zero-sum game, too. I mean, what we saw in Los Angeles is if I got reagents, then the two hospitals down the street didn't. And if they got reagents, then I was missing. And this, this bled over into blood culture plates. I mean, this just moved throughout the entirety of the laboratory. You know, I will say, you know, no one was able to hire an additional 50 FTEs, but I would have cross-trained my lab more. And so I have my laboratory where I have my molecular sort of virology laboratory, and then I have staff working in bacteriology and parasitology. You know, if I would have had the hindsight, I would have taken all of that staff. We ended up doing this anyway, but I would have taken all of that staff like a month before the pandemic and said, time to get competent in your molecular assays and brought everybody over to the laboratory, to that side of the laboratory, to be able to learn and be ready to do testing. And that would have been helpful. I mean, that's what we did to get by. But having that tool earlier, and that's something I even think about now, right? How can I increase cross-training in the laboratory? Because, you know, I don't know what the next pandemic is going to be. It's probably going to be something molecular diagnostic, but who knows? Maybe you need to help in another area of the laboratory, and suddenly I need more acid-fast bacteria-trained techs. How do we increase that within a laboratory that sometimes can be siloed in a discipline like clinical microbiology? Especially in bigger health systems, too. Yeah. So then looking back, and, and were there any characteristics of your lab that proved beneficial when this COVID-19 pandemic hits? Like anything in particular, Dr. Jerome? Yeah, my answer here is going to maybe swim a bit upstream against much of healthcare today. I think one of the great things we had was that we weren't overly lean, frankly. I think there's been this push in medicine. And really in all of society that, that we, we, we squeeze out every last bit of unused capacity for anything. That might be testing. It might be the ability to manufacture little pieces of plastic. There's no backup capacity. And kind of a conscious decision we made is we always have a little bit of extra. And we use that to work with our clinical colleagues and learn about how do we use our tests more effectively. We help with studies. We, we help with other things. And that was so valuable when this pandemic came that we did have that little bit of extra capacity that we could shift some people over to responding to COVID. We could switch a couple of instruments early on. It really gave us that early ability to respond. When, when the pandemic started up here in the Pacific Northwest, I mean, it landed here in our region. And we actually had that. And I think it was incredibly useful. And I think it's something we need to rethink on a societal basis. Why can't, why couldn't we make swabs? It's because we got rid of every last factory that could do something because somebody cut some costs, right? And, and suddenly there was no backup for anything. And we all lived through these shortages of every piece of plastic and every, every bit of the supply chain. So I think obviously efficiency is great, but resilience is also equally important and they need to be balanced. No, I agree. We're still dealing with shortages now. I'm um, talking to the lab and, and pipette tips for one of our automated instruments are in short supply. So, you know, it, we're not out of it yet. So I think that whole supply chain and, and having the resilience there, having the ability to have ramped up production a year ago when we really needed it would have been wonderful. And I completely agree with you about, you know, the labs being extremely lean. 
we very much were trying to take a look at the impact we had on the rest of the system to justify in the future, perhaps not being quite so lean, because uh, it's a, a really wise investment to have a strong laboratory, whether it's during a pandemic or for other purposes as well. You know, one, I think, advantage that a lot of the labs were able to get up and running early, you know, and this is true with my colleagues on this call, is that, you know, some labs really have experience in laboratory developed tests. Right. And that level of experience really helped early on when there weren't a lot of manufacturers that were providing tests or if they were, they needed to be modified because you were no longer using the swab type that they said you could use because no one in the globe could get that swab type. So, you know, I think that there's a balance in laboratories and being able to have both techs, specialists, directors, people who are used to and comfortable with laboratory developed tests really was an advantage for this pandemic and would be an advantage moving forward because we won't be able to predict what the target is around that. Yeah, I completely agree uh, with Dr. Garner on that. Um, clearly, the, the issue of laboratory-developed tests and the value that they bring became, for reasons that I've never fully understood, almost controversial in recent years. And I think all the arguments that we made in, in hypotheticals, in theory of why laboratory developed tests are so important, really were proven in this pandemic. Um, it really allowed that early response to occur. I mean, the first probably three or four weeks we were testing, it was all our laboratory developed tests. There was nothing from any manufacturers. And we know that early on, you just couldn't get those tests. You'd get a few. Now, clearly things have gotten better and, and clearly the FDA emergency authorized essays are fantastic and have allowed us to do much more than we ever could have. But I think it shows that there's value in both. And it's it's not a binary decision that one is good and one is not. Yeah, just one further add on to that. You know, I think um, in certain situations, and this is perhaps a learning point from this whole last year and a half, we need to find ways that the hospital laboratories, the public health laboratories, and the big reference laboratories can work together more smoothly and seamlessly to, sh to share information about the performance on their test, to be able to move testing capacity around in a way that works uh, to serve the patient's needs and to simply have access to these materials. You know, early on, again, it was um, very much a struggle for labs who were setting up LDT testing, dealing with the regulatory aspects of, of the EUA system. So I think we need to learn from the way that was handled and, and make sure that we are handling this more seamlessly in the future. I want to kind of back up just a little bit because you guys touched on the frustration early on. And, and like you said, Dr. Call, it's even happening now with um, supply chain issues, right? You can't get your pipettes, you can't get your tubes, you can't get your primers, you can't get the supplies you need to actually perform the testing that you have to perform. Moving forward and then looking toward maybe the next emergency, is there a way to ensure labs have access to the assays and the supplies they need when they need them? I think that's difficult to predict. I think we're all concerned about it. And, you know, in, in the sort of darkest times, we made decisions to even send out certain types of testing that was less critical to save on plasticware and things, uh, for example, so that we could do the more critical testing in-house. Now, that's not I ideal, but I think having, you know, a plan A, a plan B, a plan C for many of these scenarios is absolutely necessary. Yeah, I don't know if there's a magic bullet for this, right? I think the challenge of supply is, again, all of our labs were directly competing against each other and against the public health labs 
and against the reference laboratories for the exact same supplies. And so unless to Dr. Jerome's point, you're going to find a way to dramatically increase manufacturing or be more creative about that manufacturing, i.e. 3D printing, just sort of taking a broader approach. To me, this has to be addressed on the federal level. When there's a pandemic, there needs to be a federal response that allows for distribution of stockpiled supplies that keep our labs up and running. And then, you know, I would hope that the federal government could look at it in a way where we had a national testing strategy. Because if there was some level of strategy that came across, then we would be able to know sort of when and how to put our tests most efficiently. And because states, counties, and cities, academic medical centers, individual hospitals were really just left up to their own to fend for themselves through the course of this, it leads to this continual problem of supply chain. You all talked a lot about the collaboration aspect. I mean, first, of course, healthcare is a collaborative field within laboratories, across laboratories, within hospital systems, with patients, with their families. So how can we work together to more rapidly and seamlessly provide appropriate lab testing in the future? Like what sort of regulatory changes are necessary to facilitate better testing for the next pandemic? Well, I think that to some degree, if there's any sort of silver lining in this at all, it's that those connections have been made uh, largely because they had to happen. And so the communication is so much better now than it was between all the different players. We were quite intimidated by the EUA and the regulatory process in FDA previously. Um, We understand that now. There are still aspects of it that I think are difficult for an academic organization, but, but, but we sort of get it. We have much closer ties with our public health uh, public health staff now than, than we ever did, We're really working hand in hand with them now. And you, you know you see that in terms of the viral surveillance and this in the you know, large sequencing efforts now that are, that are happening that that's something we talked about providing for public health purposes and now it's actually a reality and you know, sequencing thousands of isolates. Um, and those are the things that I really hope we don't lose. If we can kind of get this pushed behind us, it is human nature to learn a lesson and then forget it. And I, I hope we don't do that because, as you pointed out at the beginning of, of the podcast, this is not the last pandemic and we need to do a better job next time. And the way to do that is to really take these lessons to heart and be sure that they're not forgotten. You know, I agree with you, and I'm glad you brought up the the sequencing efforts, which are working very well in some places, and as I understand it, talking to colleagues, not so well in other places. So uh, there's some unevenness with respect to how labs are working together, public health and, and private laboratories or hospital laboratories in that arena. So I think we need to continue to push to bolster our communication and cooperation in these areas, you know. And I mentioned earlier, I think there's some other things that we need to think about, you know, that we hadn't before. If we could be on a similar communication um, 
venue, we would be able to swing testing back and forth. In those early days, we were doing testing for the state and testing for some other hospitals when we had capacity, but it was an enormous burden to figure out who could do the testing, get those samples over to us, and then they wouldn't be ordered in our system. And so the manpower that it would take to get those samples entered into our system so they could run on our instruments was was um, not trivial. And so as we look ahead, we need to think about how to you know potentially solve these and have systems in place so that this is sustainable. I really agree with you, Dr. Kyle. And, and it goes back to something that Dr. Garner was pointing out too, is, is the need for a cohesive response at the highest levels. I mean, really a, a federal sort of level would have been, uh, if there had been a federal response, it, it would have been so much better. There were some, some of the darkest days during this pandemic for me were sort of after that initial first wave and we responded and and the virus was moving into other parts of the country um, and, and, and we were having different introduction events. And we had capacity and we had more capacity than we had samples. And it was absolutely killing me to read about parts of the country that couldn't do testing and knowing that we could have done another thousand or 2000 samples every day and helped out. But there was really no way to make those connections other than I saw this on the news and call up that hospital, but that wasn't really an effective way to do it ultimately. And if there had been a way to sort of match capacity and demand, and that should really be answered generically because the the challenges next time may be different from this time, but we see differences in capacity for sequencing right now and for other things or for viral informatics. And it's still, we still have quite a fragmented system in this country. And I think you know, you see that, you, you see some of the really wonderful science in terms of the understanding of variants, you know, from uh, the public health service in the UK. And to some degree, that's because they're a bit more cohesive than we are. They kind of have a, a system rather than 50 different systems or how you want to count it here. But but we, we tend to be quite siloed here. And, and the more we can move away by, from that while still keeping the flexibility and all the great things about our system, I think we'd be able to respond much better next time. Well, speaking about next time, I know that this is really hard to predict because as uh, Dr. Garner kind of touched on earlier, it's really hard to know what the next pandemic is going to be, right? I mean, you can kind of maybe assume it's viral, but maybe that's a bad assumption. So my question is what sort of tests or there are certain assays that you guys think you need to add to your test menu if you don't have it? Or basically what tests or assays do you think you guys need to prepare for the next one? I will sort of shout out my colleagues at University of of Washington and Dr. Jerome's lab because their viral sequencing laboratory and their viral testing laboratory, we were fortunate actually that this virus landed in Seattle, Washington first because we actually had a laboratory that not only was prepared to be able to identify, build their own tests, build their own tests at high scale, but really show how this virus was spreading. And I think that level of technology needs to spread across the country, right? That preparedness is what our little labs need to look at. You know, at UCLA, we are actually trying to model some of what we're trying to build out in our virology and molecular laboratory based on what's being done up in Dr. Jerome's laboratory, because you have to be ready. You have to be ready not only to make a new test, but make that test high throughput, right? And making a new test, I don't want to say that it's trivial, but again, that's something that an LDT creation, but doing 2,000 a day, doing 10,000 a day, even having the robotics in place to be able to answer that call 
is something that I do think academic medical centers across the country need to start looking at seriously because we have to be able to be in every major city, whether it's Los Angeles or Seattle or Dr. Call with Chicago, you know, more than likely the disease is going to land there. And so in that setting, we have to be ready. And then we have to be ready to potentially sequence. You know, I think the other part of our advantage is where in Wuhan, China, this began, you know, the sequencing of that virus happened very fast, right? Being able to have that sequence out and available so PCR assays can be made. And so having the in-house sequencing capabilities to do that as well, I think is important in targeted areas across the country. I completely agree with you. I think having that information out there, it needs to be in the public realm so that we can get that information was was key in this. But it also reminds me how we have to continually push back about this desire for leanness that we see in our entire system and in our laboratories. You know, it'd be very easy to, after COVID goes away, thinking optimistically, you know, start to scale back some of the personnel and capacity in our laboratories. And I think we just need to push back against this because we need to be ready. We did benefit, uh, and this is perhaps one of the silver linings, is we were able to purchase um, additional automated liquid handlers that we didn't have in the laboratory. And so we were able to expand some of our capacity that in the next few years, I think, will serve us well. Hopefully, we don't have to use it, but, you know, it's there and we're using it for other things in the meantime. I think it's a great exercise to think about conceptually what the next pandemic looks like. I tend to agree with you, it's probably viral. The one that gets you is the one that surprises you. So n- never say never. And, and if it comes somewhere else, we'll be ready. But but to some degree, I think it may not take the most, I don't know, insightful crystal ball to know the, the prime suspects here. I think we've seen that coronaviruses do this, right? I mean, we saw this with SARS in 2003. We've seen the MERS problems, you know, the MERS emergency. Now, of course, that one, we were lucky that it didn't transmit between people easily. And and of course, this one was bad. I think there are probably going to be continued challenges with new coronaviruses that move into the human population. We need to be ready similarly for influenza. I think that's kind of where we were thinking forever that there'd be a new type there. And and I think that our preparations have us in a good spot for that. The one I think we ought to be also thinking about is uh, an enterovirus. We've seen some of the outbreaks of uh, you know, paralytic disease with, with some of these and a situation where that became widespread. Those can be very infectious viruses and they can spread in insidious ways that are hard to control. So I think we need to be ready for those things. And they all tie back down into the capacity that we've built. I hope people don't just tear these things down for parts later on because uh, they could these instruments and uh, robotics can be incredibly useful. And then finally, I want to be sure that the sequencing capacity that we've built as a, as, a, as a nation is maintained and really made more accessible. That is, not every hospital needs to have their own sequencing program, but everybody ought to be able to tap into a sequencing program very easily without your administrator fussing about how much it costs or something. (laughs) But just for public health surveillance points of view, if there's any sort of suspicious cluster, a cluster of unexplained pneumonia or paralytic disease, whatever, those need to get into sequencing programs really quickly so that we get the first possible signal that there's a problem. 
and then get that word out. Uh, just like Dr. Garner said, you get out the sequence and then everybody can participate, right? I mean, that's when we started. We started the day the sequencing came out. We've done next to nothing before that because what do you do? But once we have the sequence, everybody can chip in. And so I think we need to think about that nationally. How do we make sure that even places that don't have local access to that still have easy access to sequencing capacity? You know, the other thing I'm, I'm thinking, listening to these comments is we all understand this. You know, we've been living it. You know, how do we continue to tell the story to our administrators? Because they're the ones who need to understand it going forward. And I think that's a, a key question in my mind. So is that a silver lining of the pandemic in terms of, of the awareness of the laboratory that institutions and possibly the public have gotten? I think that's potentially a silver lining. There's been a lot of emphasis on the lab and, and you know, as, as you've been hearing here, just the necessity of the lab to reopen our institutions and to keep our patients safe. But I, I do worry that this will be forgotten as time goes on if we, you know, have a gap between outbreaks, which hopefully we will. Uh, I think uh, we're going to need to continually remind administrators and regulators that this is really, really important. Dr. Call, I really agree with you on that. I think that to some degree, we need to take responsibility if this lesson gets forgotten. I think our job, especially if and when things start to wind down, is being sure that administration doesn't forget uh, the contributions that the laboratory made and doesn't forget that this would have really gone south if it weren't for, for what the lab was able to do. And that part of their responsibility is to make sure that we're as prepared as possible, that we have the resources we need to respond for the next pandemic. Yeah, my hope is that sort of the front and center that lab testing has taken in this pandemic, even amongst the public, right? I have people just come up to me and want to talk about PCR. That had never happened before. I want to hopefully grow on that energy, right? We have a lot of collateral right now to be able to prepare us for the next one. But I agree, if the gap is too long, people will forget. But I hope, you know, because testing has been so front and center and the lack of testing, right, not only the lack of testing overall, but the inequity of testing, even across our country, right? We see this in Los Angeles. There are some areas like the West Side, you can get a test pretty easily, but that was the side of Los Angeles that was not the hardest hit. But our more impoverished areas, our underserved areas, our minority areas, you saw a higher amount of infection, and you saw, of course, less available testing in that area. So my hope is all this can come together so that testing for the next pandemic ends up being something that because there's so much public pressure, you see hospitals paying for it. You see the federal government putting resources into it, and you see a strategy overall to make it more accessible. So, you know, to me, we have to take advantage of this moment because lab testing won't be on the front page of the news. I mean, even now, we don't talk about lab testing as much, right? But you'll remember a year ago, it was everywhere. It's what everybody wanted to talk about. So hopefully we can maintain momentum and increase availability. Let me shift a little bit to what silver linings you guys think that we've gotten over the course of the pandemic in terms of, of science, laboratory science and medicine. Are there things that we've gained through this pandemic that it's like, hey, maybe, you know, like obviously the pandemic sucked, but this is good that we have this. Can you guys talk about that a little bit? 
I think there are some silver linings. I, I hate to talk about that, use it quite in that term, although I did it earlier, just because, of course, this has been such a, a disaster as a nation and for so many people personally. That said, I think that there are, are aspects we can take away where where we're better situated uh, because of the response to COVID. One thing that our programs thought a lot about, we, we, we are sort of a hybrid clinical diagnostic program with a, with a strong research component. And the one thing I've thought about is what happens if this really does go away and we've got all these robotics and things go back to the level of demand that we had before. And wow, the way that you can start to think about answering research questions is really is taken to a completely different level. And so I think that there are some opportunities for people to think creatively about, about utilizing some of the equipment capacity that we've built, whether that's for research, whether that's for surveillance, for other infections. The way that we've gotten used to this idea about people getting specimens for themselves, for example, and then sending it in for, for a quick diagnosis. That We take that for granted a little bit, but that's sort of never been how complex laboratories have really worked for viral infections. I mean, typically it's been a much more complicated situation to get a sample taken and results may have taken a week or whatever they used to take in the old days. And so we can actually think about different ways to manage healthcare. Um, we ought to be able to get people on their anti-influenza medications much quicker now, for example, just because turnaround time and reporting and in sample acquisition is all better. So I, th- I think there are ways that we will find certain aspects of medical care have improved. Um, and I think there are going to be these unexpected offshoots, the sort of thing that, you know, the people in the space program always talk about that, you know, you, we, we went to the moon, but now you've got a iPhone or whatever they'll claim. And I think you'll see things like that come out of this as well. And again, it's really our responsibility to make sure that that those things really happen and that we don't overlook possibilities for improving medical care through what has happened to all of us. You know, building on that, I, I think there are some pluses for the lab, but I can look at you know the way we're delivering clinical care and see some changes there that the pandemic has definitely moved along. You know, we're doing virtual visits for certain things, and I, and I think that's a good thing. Not for everything, but I think it's a good thing. And now we can get paid for that. Uh, hopefully that will continue. You know, it certainly has allowed us to rethink the way that we're doing some of our teaching in our med tech school or even our residency. You know, we'd much prefer a face-to-face interaction, but um, we've been able to do a lot with you know recorded sessions or zoom lectures and discussion sessions afterwards and that allows you know many of our participants across our multi-hospital system to participate more easily and so there's pluses there as well and I think we can count those on the wind side of this you know whole last awful 18 months there have been some good things yeah that's a great point I think about that a lot personally that I'm able to electronically get across town so easily whereas it seemed like Previously, so much of the day was lost moving from place to place. And so we think about that in terms of our own little world. But but really, it also means that our colleagues who are in uh, less urbanized parts of the country can also participate in really the front edge of, of a response to any sort of medical thing. And, and you know, telehealth and, and, and all the things that you're talking about really have been strengthened so much. I mean, we all remember how awkward Zoom meetings were early on, just from the technology and our own familiarity with them. And I think that's a real benefit. And again, I really hope that we we take maximal advantage of that. 
Yeah, I see the pandemic, especially from a lab testing side, has pushed academic medical centers out into their communities, right? And we've done testing for areas that we had never done testing before. So I'm hoping that pipeline can continue, right? I'm hoping that those relationships that are built with, let's say, maybe surrounding skilled nursing facilities or hospitals that are under-resourced, that are looking towards sort of the larger centralized clinical laboratories to do COVID testing, may be able to look for them to do other supportive testing as well, right? And so really provide a local resource of expertise that honestly academic medical centers and communities should be playing. And so I'm hoping that that continues past just our pandemic. Yeah, a great example of that sort of thing that I was thinking about is, is, is the way that I feel that it's kind of empowered the laboratory in, in our profession to actually take an active role in, in addressing disparities and equity of access and so forth. The city of Seattle set up a lot of just testing sites that would then feed into our laboratory. And as the pandemic sort of began to wind down, they were less used and there was, you know, some thought about closing them down. And, and our department medical center essentially said, we'll, we'll, we're happy to take them over. Can we sort of redistribute these, you know, the mobile vans or the, the, the tents to different places? And so we've really been able to really focus on areas that have been traditionally underserved and that, at least in our area, are still being hit more by COVID-19. And so rather than sort of being passive partners talking about uh, equity and, and accessibility, we're actually driving it now. And I think that's a, a really cool thing to that would have never happened without this COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah, it sounds like it allowed pathology and laboratory medicine to address disparities in terms of access to testing, like you said, but then also access to education, because all of a sudden there are virtual fellowships and there are courses and and lectures you can attend from anywhere. You don't, you're not bound by a specific location. So that's kind of an exciting thing that we've hopefully cracked open the field a little bit more, both in terms of awareness of it, but also in terms of who has access to that education or testing. So over you know the course of the entire pandemic, uh, there's been clearly a lot of information and information that has been changed as, as we have all learned more about this virus and about the pandemic. But what role does the laboratory play in the dissemination of reliable information and in what ways can we improve? Well, I think that's a really global question. How do we disseminate reliable information? And, and I'd say as a society, we haven't done too well. But I will say one of the things I was happy to see this past year, we had, and many institutions did this, had you know weekly virtual town halls. Again, so we're using these remote uh, approaches to connecting like uh, GoToMeeting and Zoom to reach out to hundreds of people. We would have nearly a thousand physicians on our weekly calls. And it was a, it was basically a COVID update. It served to connect us. It served to uh, do a lot of hand-holding, ask you know, a lot of questions from our clinicians who were dealing with patients. And, and you know, it was a tremendous source of support for everyone in our system. But one of the things I really appreciated is they had a lab representative uh, at most of these meetings, particularly early on, because there were, as you've heard, so many questions about the lab and testing. And you know, it gave us an opportunity to really make sure that the information being disseminated to our clinician colleagues was, was accurate. I'd certainly love to see that go on to the general public 
public in a way that uh, would be believable by all. You know, we're not there yet, but it, it's critically important to get the correct information. And I certainly hope that that those of our colleagues who are willing or able to do it maintain their willingness to interact with the media and, and just opportunities to speak to the public. In an ideal world, we should be seen as a reliable source of of our understanding of truth as best w- we see it now uh, at, at any given moment. And, and it's an opportunity for education about, yeah, a few things we say now were a little different from what we thought early on. And that's part of it. That's part of science. And I've tried to make those sorts of, you know, to get that idea across throughout uh, what I've done. But, but I think many folks, many of us in our profession have, have probably done more media, more outreach, more interviews in the last year and a half than than the rest of our career combined. That's certainly true for me. And none of us probably went into virology or microbiology in order to become media stars. Uh, that's just, that would have been a shown poor planning, I think. <laughs> but, it, but it did sort of find us. And, and it's important to step up to that because we really do have knowledge and we really, I think, we want to share that and, and help people to understand how they personally can respond to this and what they should do, whether that should be a mask, whether that should be getting a vaccine, whether they should be getting tested. These are things that uh, we need to be saying over and over. And, and hopefully with enough, enough examples of us saying the right thing and, and, and unfortunately as a society maybe seeing the consequences of not doing the right thing, some of these lessons will, will, will be taken to heart. And I hope that there, there becomes a stronger appreciation for expertise and for experts in their field and, and for the knowledge that they can impart. One last question I have for you is, um, it's more, more of a comment than a question, I guess. What are your final thoughts on where we go from here and, and where we've been? Is there basically anything that you want to say that maybe we didn't cover? Dr. Gardner, why don't we start with you? Sure. You know, I think the unfortunate reality of this pandemic is that we are still in this pandemic. And so I made the decision last flu season that my laboratory needed to be prepared for any symptomatic patient to have either flu or COVID. And so we actually designed an entire testing strategy around that. And to be honest with you, I wasted all those flu tests because there wasn't any influenza that came through that season. And so, you know, I think that the unpredictable nature of this whole thing, you know, I think that unfortunately over the last two months, and I'm guilty of this as well, you know, as well as things were going as we were moving through April and May and continued vaccination rates, climbing, disease coming down, it felt like sort of we were coming our way out of it. And I think that this last month has been a wake-up call, and we have to remember winter is coming. And so I think in that setup, you know, really looking at this pandemic for what it is, because while I really want to be prepared for the next pandemic, we aren't finished with this one. And there are going to be stressors and there are going to be resources that we won't have. And I don't know what the next variant is going to do. And I don't know how our testing is going to have to change. So I actually don't even know how many patients we're going to have to test next week. And so I think in that remembering we're still in the midst of this pandemic, and trying to use not only what we learned at the early part of this pandemic, but what we're learning right now, which I'm hoping is the middle part 
of this pandemic and learn coming out of the pandemic and take all of those lessons into the next pandemic. Because I don't know what we're going to learn over the next six months, but I can guarantee we're going to learn a lot. Any other final thoughts? One thing to think about in the next pandemic that could be different, we take for granted now that we have these incredibly efficacious vaccines that were made very, very quickly. And of course, there's controversy and in, in, in people are choosing, some people are choosing not to participate in vaccination. But what does a pandemic look like that's like this or potentially symptomatically worse? And it's not a, quote, easy vaccine target. That's a very different ballgame. And I don't know what 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 that would really look like. But Remember, there are many viral targets that we've been searching for a vaccine for many, many years without success. Things like HIV and hepatitis B and herpes. And so, you know, we got lucky here. We take it for granted. Of course, there's a vaccine in a year and a month or whatever. Well, that wasn't a given at all. And if you can imagine that instead of being stuck at 70% of the adult population vaccinated, we, we were at zero the demands of testing could potentially be far, far worse than what we've even seen so far. So I guess it's just a cautionary tale that this isn't necessarily the worst that a pandemic could be. And I think we need to be aware of that. Think about our preparation, not what will we do for the next COVID-19, but what we do for COVID-19 on steroids, so to speak. And so uh, that's what we think about. And that's what keeps me up at night worrying about. As horrific as it's been, it could have been way worse. Absolutely. And we have learned a lot. It's been difficult. It's been frustrating, but we have learned a great deal that we need to carry forward. Hopefully we can do that. Hey guys, this has been such a really great conversation. Like Dr. Garner said, we're still still in the during times, but even so we do need to look forward and see what we can do to, to improve for the next one. I want to thank you guys so much for taking the time to talk with Loti and I. This has been so great. And I also want to remind our listeners to tell their colleagues about the podcast and to subscribe with your favorite podcast aggregator. And as always, you can receive CME and CMLE credit for listening to our podcast by looking for Inside the Lab in the ASCP store on our website at www.acp.org.